0: Welcome back, fellow futurists. Sophia Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to the show, welcome. In each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and change makers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. So settle in because we're about to take off and dive into another radically optimistic conversation. When it comes to fighting infectious disease outbreaks, contact tracing is a key public health response. Mobile technologies, including GPS, Bluetooth, cell phone masks, and AI-powered big data analytics can help collect data that helps decision makers understand and manage the spread of pandemics like COVID-19 within their own communities. But when using this kind of technology, it's critical to preserve personal privacy to not only maintain public trust, but especially to protect vulnerable individuals during a crisis. This episode explores how privacy-preserving techniques, such as homomorphic encryption and solutions for mobile phone contact tracing can be deployed, including real-world examples from Israel and the US. Today's episode was originally recorded at AI for Good, an annual global summit hosted by ITU and XPRIZE. And while some elements of the conversation are more timely to COVID spread in April 2020 at the time of the recording, our guests discuss and explore how developers are creating tracing software, its importance in early response efforts, and technical specifics, all of which are especially relevant challenges today. So let's dive in.
2: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We hope that all of you and your families, your friends, and your colleagues are healthy and safe. My name is Reinhard Scholl. I'm with the ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, which is the United Nations Specialized Agency for Information and Communication Technologies. It's hard to be optimistic these days. Uh, COVID-19 is likely to cost the lives of millions of people a return to what's called normal, maybe years away, and terrible trade-offs have to be taken by people, countries all over the world, weighing against each other health and death and the economy. One toolbox to fight COVID-19 are information and communication technologies. Countries are using data and telecommunication networks in order to get a handle on COVID-19. One tool in the toolbox is called contact tracing. The goal of contact tracing is to identify people who have come into close contact with persons that have been infected by the virus. The handling of personal data has been a hot topic of public focus even before COVID-19 but COVID-19 may add another dimension to the discussion. Is there a trade-off, not just between privacy and health, but privacy and death? Or is it possible to have both privacy and health? The fear is that the short-term emergency measures that are being undertaken right now will stay after the madness has passed. I'm happy to welcome two speakers our first speaker is Kurt Roloff. Kurt is associate professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and he is the co-founder and CTO of Duality Technologies. Our second speaker will be Thomas Wiegand. Thomas Wiegand is the executive director of the Fraunhofer Heinrich Kurtz Institute. He's also professor at the Technical University of Berlin. And he is the chair of the ITU WHO focus group on AI for Health. Thomas will be speaking about PEPPT. PEPPT stands for Pan European Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracing. And Kurt will be talking about privacy enhancing technologies. So let's get started with uh, our first uh, speaker, Kurt, and we'll hand over to you.
1: So yeah, thank you very much for the kind introduction. As uh, Reinhardt indicated, my name is Kurt Roloff. I'm CTO and co-founder of Duality Technologies. I happen to be in uh, metro New York City right now, so I'm very much feeling the effects of uh, COVID-19, although my family has been safe and healthy so far. What we have at Duality Technologies is we are experts in, in privacy and privacy technologies that we've done deploying commercially And uh, we've been involved with the space for for some time and have started to look at how one could run secure analytics using privacy technologies such as homework encryption. And what I was invited to talk to today was how we might use these technologies and how we've been developing these technologies, particularly to do privacy protected uh, contact tracing, as uh, Reinhardt indicated. And this has pushed us into our thinking about how we're developing and and modifying some of our products and capabilities and developing technologies to enable contact tracing. And this initial product and and capability that we've been focusing on has been driven by our our team in in Israel. And Duality is uh, international. We're split between the eastern coast of the U.S. and Tel Aviv. The need for for contact tracing is, for those of you who, who aren't familiar about it, is uh, finding everyone who came into contact with an infectious individual and going back and tracing through who has access and who hasn't. And so this basically includes everyone in COVID-19 who was in close proximity for the last 14 days. And we've seen a number of countries that have been looking at this. Our thinking, collective thinking is that contact tracing provides a much more quick and effective response than potentially locking down a country if done early enough um, and uh, effectively enough. So what we see as a major challenge and a major aspect of contact tracing is uh, it takes a network and it's uh, a major, major data sharing challenge. It's intended to be a less painful step in in strengthening our collective response, but it is a very, very privacy, privacy sensitive in that it mixes both medical and location data. Medical being the information about whether someone has been tested positive or not and location data about where someone actually is and physically might be operating. And so the challenge is generally how do we enable contract tracing, meaning how do we share the appropriate data and access to the appropriate data and analytics on the data while actually protecting privacy at the same time? And our, our strong thesis is that this is not an either-or capability. It's we can have, have both while enabling contact tracing, while protecting privacy, and not totally sharing data. And so as part of that, um, we see this pain point about the mixture of privacy regulation, security, analytics, and even some aspects of cloud computing to enable secure digital collaboration. And there's a few aspects of that related to how privacy regulations, IP concerns have been barriers, and they should be barriers, particularly when dealing with a highly, highly sensitive information. And so for example, data owners, for example, uh, folks who have location data like the major tech firms, telecom carriers, things like that. And health agencies have been hesitant to share data due to privacy regulations. And we see this particularly in in the US in a number of jurisdictions and, and rightfully so that a lot of the telecom carriers have been very, very hesitant to share data because of privacy concerns and regulation. We also believe that it is nearly impossible in any large or large country, large geographic area, to get adequate individual opt-in, which is basically to have individuals, you know, opt-in on a person-by-person basis, to uh, enable data sharing. And, and this is also slowed response in, in some ways. The unfortunate reality is that many countries have felt the need to remove privacy laws um, after initial delays, and so you're kind of getting, in some sense, the the, the worst of both, where you're not getting an effective early response, and you're also getting the removal of privacy laws, and which is, of course, the suboptimal. You know, obviously, people's health and well-being are, are high importance, and we want to, of course, protect people as much as possible. And so then we, we come to the question about how do we make it acceptable for data owners and health agencies to work together by sharing data and collaborating on data? Actually, more to the point, how do you collaborate on data? So we see this uh, combination of secure data analytic collaboration. So not necessarily sharing data, but collaborating on data to combine aspects like cloud, model uh, sharing, data sharing, enabling investigations while still protecting privacy, regulation, security, and and any kind of business secrets, for example, that a uh, telecom carrier might have. And so we see the need of a a privacy solution, enabling secure collaboration between data owners, custodians, and, and model owners and investigators using privacy-enhanced technology, basically to balance, so that there isn't necessarily a trade-off, a zero-sum game between privacy and data utility, where the goal is to basically to get maximum utility and maximum privacy also from data and and so on. And so enter into the room, the concept of privacy-enhancing technologies. And so I'm going to give a brief overview of of various privacy-enhancing technologies so also called PETS, P-E-T-S, that are part of the toolbox we can use to address these different problems. One of them I'll particularly focus on is the aspect of homomorphic encryption and how we've particularly been using it in a case study here in Duality Technologies. So you know, there are a number of uh, privacy technologies, and I do to focus on four of them. One in particular that you could purchase, for example, commercially right now, is uh, secure hardware or enclaves. So this is, for example, the Intel SDX uh, technologies, where it basically it's a special part of the uh, silicon on a chip, which allows you to basically secure, secure away uh, an aspect of data. So it basically makes the data on a chip inaccessible to any process outside of the secure hardware and allows applications to run on, on sensitive information. Typical use cases include running applications on, on sensitive data on dedicated hardware in less trusted environments, such as a cloud and and so forth. Everything comes with its drawbacks, of course, nothing is a panacea, and drawbacks of secure hardware enclaves, such as SGX, include aspects of being hardware dependent, requiring software modifications, and some of the early versions of it have demonstrated to have been susceptible to to potential attacks. Another technology that's uh, currently in increasing use right now is the concept of uh, secure multi-party computation which allows parties to perform a joint computation on individual inputs without revealing underlying data. And so the concept is that you'll have multiple participants, two, three, four, five, so on and so forth, each with their own data set, and then they want to run some joint analytics on this shared data set. So secure multi-party computation, also called MPC or SMC, allows parties to perform joint computations, individual inputs, without actually revealing the underlying data. Typical use cases include the benchmarking or or shared shared analytics between collaborating parties where aggregated output is adequate. There are a number of drawbacks like this, like like any of the technologies. The output is is known about all parties, and sometimes this could be an issue, for example, with healthcare cases that because of privacy concerns, even sharing an output is problematic. Deployments are often complex, meaning all the participants have to be online and on high bandwidth links. And typically requires intensive communication between parties, often driving high costs. There are a number of good solutions out there, both open source, academic, and commercial, for a secure multi-party. And you know, for those of you that are interested, I highly encourage you to look at them. Uh, another technology is uh, differential privacy, which is a, a way of generating aggregated data and then randomly generating noise, therefore limiting each party's ability to reverse engineer individuals' inputs. And so this is basically adding a level of statistical noise to uh, a data set. And so this allows aggregated data analytics where where individual precise results are not needed. Uh, For example, on census data here in the US. Differential privacy is sometimes problematic for for medical applications because it lacks clinical precision for some applications, meaning that results are directionally correct, but not necessarily precise, and a limited number and type of computations can be run due to added noise. The one that we'll, we'll be focusing on in particular is this notion of uh, homomorphic encryption. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, it, it provides an ability to take data, encrypt that data, run analytics on that data while encrypted without sharing keys and uh, enabling end-to-end encryption and analytics. So that data is encrypted at rest, in transit, uh, and in use. And computations can be run on the actual encrypted data while it is encrypted. It's also somewhat malleable in that it can be combined with other approaches, such as secure multi-party and, and ver- enabling various hardware-type approaches. Also, what well, we found that it's quite good where cases where flexibility in computation is desired, where you don't necessarily want to have or need to can have all the participants online at all the time. Uh, while also satisfying regulatory compliance, but also running on generic generic hardware, commercial off the shelf hardware, not necessarily having specialized enclaves. It has had drawback that it it is not as uh, generally performant, but it is uh, very good for batch style computation or where you can run computations where you can have a slightly slower response without the uh, bandwidth considerations. So in terms of the uh, technologies themselves, We put together a a short uh, cheat sheet for these. And also, like I said, one of the drawbacks of Homework Crypto is it can't necessarily be used for line speed type computations, but it's quite good for batch and these uh, various benefits and trade-offs of technologies as I presented them right now. We, we in our our proof of concept, and our capability, have been focusing on Homework Crypto. So I'm going to particularly dive into that. And the notion of computing on a crypto data is that a data owner will encrypt its, his or her sensitive data using a, a public key, uh, set it up uh, when it's encrypted to, to a cloud environment, for example, send that data to a computation service like a generic cloud, and then run computation on that data while it is encrypted. Get back an encrypted result, and the computation is run without sharing any decryption keys or anything like that. Uh, the computation is run, an encrypted result is returned, and then that information is then decrypted, and the somewhat black perceived a black magic result is that the ending result of the computation is in the clear, and is the same computation, same result as if the computation would or had had been run on the data in the clear also. So we've been looking at how to use this for for contact tracing in a privacy protected manner, uh, with the goal being to identify individuals exposed to COVID nineteen based on location and time without exposing uh, PII, Personally Identifiable Information, and using Homework Encryption to enable organizations to, to run analytics while data is encrypted also. So to collaborate, extract insights and data without exposing sensitive information. And so the results of this, and I'll, I'll dig into this a little bit more, but the schematic of the data flow is that take a query which has information about a perceived infectious individual, encrypt the individual's information, send it to up to a uh, a data location provider, run analytic on the uh, encrypted computation to identify who was co-located and return information to a health agency, which could then decrypt results and identify individuals who had been exposed. So we have this running currently at scale of several hundred thousand participants. And so it's available for, for example, municipal level interactions and, and things like that. And so the contact tracing capability that we have right now is developed as a secure plus query capability for privacy-protected contact tracing to enable both sharing and viewing information pertaining to to exposed individuals. Uh, So we run this through a uh, multi-loop query where the input to uh, a first query is a unique identifier, such as a phone number or email of an identified infected individual and a date range of when they might have been infectious, such as, for example, uh, getting tested and then individuals identified who have been affected. And so then trying to identify how long they had been infectious, whether it's for five days or 14 days before, and then getting from the results of that query, getting location information, uh, date, date ranges, and time ranges where the uh, mobile device had, that the individual had possessed uh, was located. And so that the uh, privacy of this is that when the query is sent to, for example, the mobile phone carrier, the mobile phone carrier does not receive any information, any medical information about who was infectious or not. And so the health agencies get information about the location data of the infectious individuals and the the healthcare authorities cannot see information about uh, the the individuals they're not querying on also. We then run a second query with the location dates and times of where the mobile devices had been pinged so that individuals at the same place and same time as the infected individual can be identified and so that the location data providers cannot see the PII of the uh, time and place location of the infectious individual, and the healthcare authorities similarly cannot see the PII related to the unexposed individuals also. This can then be used for action going forward of using it to uh, contact individual individuals who might be exposed and request or require the quarantine as national laws allow. Uh, we're, we're particularly using the Palisade Homomorphic Encryption Library it is a uh, general source, general purpose, open source lattice encryption library built from a consortium of contributors, including Duality, MIT, Raytheon, Lucent Government Systems, Intel, and a few more, which was heavily funded by uh, DARPA and other parts of the R&D infrastructure in the U.S. government. But it is open source and released on the two-clause BSD license, and it supports the uh, major standardized homework for encryption schemes. And we feel it's very, very important to use standard schemes. No proprietary crypto, we feel is very important to use open source implementations of crypto, with a, which have been vetted by third parties, which is particularly why we like the Palisade Homework Encryption Library. Uh, Truth in Advertising, I'm heavily involved with it, but I encourage other people to look at it also. And also, this is also another engagement with uh, ITUT, where we've been looking at privacy standards associated with Homework Encryption, and have defined an industry standards consortium body to analyze the security and and trustfulness of the underlying schemes, which has had fairly wide reach so far. Um, I encourage you to get involved through homomorphicencryption.org. And uh, if you're interested in the technology, please do go forward here. We do have very broad participation, and I believe we're gonna be having a virtual meeting hosted by the ITU in several months. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Kurt, thanks very much for this uh, overview of privacy uh, enhancing uh, technologies. You mentioned that you're currently, uh, I don't know, is, it, is it called maybe a prototype? I mean, you currently have uh, several hundred thousands of users. So who, who, is, who is your user? This is not an app. I mean, right now there are like a plethora of apps available to, for contact tracing, but your clientele is uh, who exactly?
1: Right. So we focus on enterprise level engagements. And so this would be, for example, data location businesses, whether it's advertising agencies that have a lot of, lots of data, telecoms, which have lots of data, government entities, which often have the uh, healthcare concerns. Uh, the thought being that everyone wants to respect privacy, but everyone also wants to uh, uh, support the fight against COVID-19. And so how we can do that without removing privacy and respecting privacy. And so allows the uh, government agencies to get access about infectious individuals, which they would be able to under, under local regulation, but at the same time not getting access to all the, the movement and personal PII information of individuals with, which they should not have access to. And so we allows, and this is, we see as a major major aspect of privacy technologies as enabling collaboration And enable these organizations to move much more quickly while still protecting privacy.
2: A big issue is trust. Whenever it comes to data, people or companies or governments are never never quite sure how much you can trust that the data are really uh, safe, that they're not being uh, abused, that there is not a malicious uh, use, uh, that they're not being sold So is someone looking into some independent organization, looking into that to make sure that uh, all the data privacy uh, regulations have been observed?
1: So this of course varies from country to country, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Obviously data is driven by, by some aspects is driven by collection point. Some some aspects is driven by storage point. At some level also, you know, fortunately, unfortunately data is very portable. I know that different countries have different regulations associated with oversight, associated with data. So I, it'd be very hard for me to generalize that. I know my personal experience about US and US is even a bit fractured in that regards because of the various states and, and government agencies. And so my, but my understanding is that generally there are in the U.S. some fairly stiff uh, regulations associated with privacy, particularly with uh, health data and, and things like that. And so of course, I'm sure you're very aware in the Euro- European Union there is there is also. Frankly, as someone who is, uh, I consider myself an expert or at least practitioner of privacy technologies, uh, I personally have a hard time keeping track of the individual privacy regulations, even in the major countries, because they do change so often but what we found is that generally if there's a very strong pet technology privacy enhancing technologies generally this allows even much quicker collaboration even between jurisdictions because if you you know come up with some like a very strong technologies allows you to satisfy regulations much more broadly to enable rapid collaboration particularly in the case of for example international travel which is one of the reasons that covid-19 has spread so aggressively
2: Do you know, and for all the uh, the companies, uh, and maybe also with within your own company, that use uh, technologies um, for contact tracing, are there sunset clauses somehow built into these uh, systems? You know, once the crisis is over, that no data are used for further whatever. How do you make sure that things stop once uh, they are not needed anymore?
1: Well, you know, a certain aspect, a certain reality is that once data is exposed, it's exposed. And there's very little limitations one could have. If one is not going to respect privacy and regulation, then once someone has data, there's very little one can do. One of the reasons that we've been pushing on the, the protocols that we have for these interactions is that data doesn't have to be shared in the clear. It's only encrypted information is actually shared so that the participants don't actually share the data. So after the emergency has passed, the actual non-required data, you know obviously some data is required to share, such as the, the information about locations of infectious individuals, but the information about non-infected or non-exposed individuals never leaves the, uh, never leaves the location of the, uh, the premises of the data owner so that it completely removes that risk of having data taking on life of its own after the emergency passes.
2: What about the standardization of privacy-enhancing technologies? Are there global standards? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the homomorphic encryption effort, uh, which uh, is currently a consortium which uh, you're looking into, whether this could turn into a, a globally accepted specification. Maybe you can add a couple of words to that. And also, with respect to the other technologies uh, that you mentioned, uh, are there standards activities sure. going on?
1: Sure, sure, sure. And what we see. You know, this notion of secure collaboration, this notion of privacy technology, it's all driven by trust. And so what we found that when people decide whether to adopt a privacy technology or not, it is really driven by a trust argument, and which is one of the reasons that we, we are such strong advocates for only using open academic results that have gone through the peer review process in terms of crypto schemes, while we advocate only the use of, of open source technologies so they could be open and exposed. And and validated, and also why we we are very, very uh, supportive of international standardization processes for privacy, security settings, and other kinds of activities. So it allows for both collaboration and interoperability and a short notion of trust during collaboration, which is, of course, required for collaboration. You know, this has been a big thrust for us and the homework for encryption community to build this international consortium and engage with major organizations, both businesses, academics, and international bodies, such as the ITU, as you go forward on this. I know that other privacy technologies have also had similar areas, such as the zero-knowledge proof community, uh, the secure multi-party community, and I believe there are others for other organizations. And we're starting to see broader uptake of these technologies, specifically because of the engagement of international standards bodies. And the international standards bodies has been helping to promote these privacy technologies, which is why we're so very happy to always engage with organizations such as the ITU to promote the use.
2: How widely are these uh, technologies deployed in the market?
1: Sure. So what we are seeing is that a lot of these technologies are now being commercialized. Um, you know, I think um, you know. S- several years ago, they were perceived as being more of uh, research products and you know, research projects as much as anything. But what we're seeing right now is that there is a, a very healthy uh, commercial ecosystem being built up around these technologies. Uh, I personally am a fan of that because it takes open source technologies, and of course. Um, helps to broaden its deployment and use and, and fostering of open source also. Part and parcel of that is the adoption of these technologies by, by government, by enterprises. You know, We at Duality have our business around it, and we are very happy with the way things are going. Uh, we also see that the number of competitors in the market, both from startups and, and from large businesses, that have their own uh, solutions. Uh, I believe that if you basically went to every, every one of the major tech firms, and even you know some of the smaller companies, Every single one of them has a group that's either building, using, or 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 investigating privacy-enhancing technologies. So my my intu- intuition is that it's pretty widely deployed across the tech firms right now.
2: Okay, great, thanks a lot, Kurt. So this was Dr. Kurt Roloff from Duality. So we go to Berlin, Thomas. Welcome. You got a great uh, introduction by uh, by Kurt. He says he's uh, asking I asked him what are your favorite apps. He says he likes what uh, PEPPT is trying to do.
3: So PEPPT stands for Pan-European Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracing. We uh, are a team of about 130 uh, people from eight countries, at at least as of Wednesday. I haven't counted uh, how many people are now participating and helping from how many countries. I think we've been contacted by 10 more countries. Let me start with proximity tracing um, as a term from those PEPPT terms. The term "social distancing," in our view is not the right term. It should be physical distancing, because uh, what really matters for this problem that we try to support solving is that uh, people keep a physical distance. That physical distance is actually uh, an indicator for a higher risk of exposure of a virus transmission. And uh, we are basically providing a measurement for that physical distance. Uh, And we use uh, uh, Bluetooth low energy on these phones. And it does not matter at all where you met. It doesn't matter who you met. The virus doesn't care about that. It just cares about two people getting too close uh, and having droplets uh, uh, as a carrier to transmit. So what we decided is to basically I use this uh, mechanism of Bluetooth Low Energy, um, the passive scan, which uh, basically uh, is running on your phone when you have enabled Bluetooth every three, four milliseconds. And uh, we are basically we are sending broadcast messages out uh, using the passive scan. And these broadcast messages are only a short distance, like four or five meters, and they contain a uh, randomized code word. That is created in a way that it's uniquely mapped to this app, so the app knows what codewords it, it creates. If the proximity is, pre- is given for a long enough period of time, the uh, phones uh, basically uh, know, lock their, each other's proximity by basically writing the randomized ID into um, a local uh, uh, file, which is encrypted. And uh, we basically, based on that, this 21 days uh, uh, looking back, and then if the next day comes, the 22nd day is, is, is remo- removed. So we have a sliding window where we lock this proximity, and it's completely encrypted on the phone. And if nothing happens, nothing happens. And we can hopefully use that to go um, on with our new normal life. But uh, hopefully, uh, the lockdown can be st- uh, uh, can also be released based a little bit on this technology. So. What if something happens? um, Somebody is uh, tested positive for the virus. In most European countries, they will be notified by the health authorities. It is actually, they they know it from the labs, testing labs. And the testing lab uh, would basically trigger a mechanism to provide a authorization for a user of the app to start a process. This authorization is, is like a TAN in banking, um, a banking activity as you know it. And so basically, once it's used, it's burnt. And this TAN allows the user, by putting it into the phone, and there can be mechanisms to make the user flow uh, better than somebody typing something in to upload uh, data to the server. And uh, the data would uh, relate to um, the way the user could produce its own uh, random information. Uh, his own uh, random IDs and uh, like the seed or it would contain the proximity history. And there are two ways then to go on from there. One way to go on from there is to um, essentially upload the proximity history from the phone. The server knows how to map the proximity history to to, uh, um, IDs of the app and the app is notified. This mechanism is very simple. It provides uh, the minimum amount of health information being sent around because you would basically be only sending information to those who are having close contact, and everybody else uh, would get just a, a dummy message. We make sure that it's privacy preserving. The other option is you use the seat of the app of the phone of the infected person, you upload it, you convey that seat, and uh, every other phone could then essentially. Uh, reproduce the random IDs that the phone of the infected person has seen. And that way you could uh, check on your phone whether you have been in close contact and know yourself. That one has the benefit that the server would not know. On the other hand, a health related information is being conveyed Actually broadcasted to all users. So both pet methods have up and downs. They can be made compatible and we are basically providing them both. We are making sure that privacy is preserved according to GDPR rules. For that, first of all, the big question is: can the health information be with a reasonable effort be mapped back to a real person? That must be avoided under all circumstances. So uh, if there's a simple w- a way of attacking this approach uh, and the health information, which is basically, for instance, the status of a positive test or the status of being in contact to a person that has been positively tested. And that information where where possible to be mapped back to a real person, that would not be in accordance with GDPR. And so in order to make sure that that's not the case, we have basically two mechanisms. One is that we do not use any personalized information in the system whatsoever, nothing. No location, no phone number, no name, no MAC ID, no geolocation, nothing. And this is one mechanism. Another mechanism is that all communication is uh, obfuscated by, uh, so if you want to send a message to 200 people, you are actually sending a message to 200,000 people. And uh, basically, within that, uh, also, the even from the traffic, you will not be able to determine whether the traffic, if somebody sniffles the traffic, that uh, there's a health related information being transmitted. The last aspect I wanted to mention is the aspect of the Pan-European and PEP So what we have built into the system is a country code. These uh, randomized IDs basically uh, contain a country code. So the the uploads of of the data from the phone of the infected person that goes to a trust uh, service and a trust service basically uh, can uh, decrypt these ra- randomized IDs to the extent that uh, one byte is, contains the country code and the rest remains encrypted. And uh, by that, uh, the server would basically know uh, which country to send uh, the randomized uh, ID to. Then that randomized ID would be handled in the other country. And so it's a bit like uh, mobile phone networks or the first GSM network where you would basically have the feature of roaming so we have built roaming into uh, the system. And I guess that's a very fundamental European idea. We are, we are living with the fact that uh, cross-country travel and uh, me being a telecommunications engineer, appear to be very clear that we need to have roaming in the system. So these are the features. Uh, we are currently doing field tests uh, with an army barrack uh, here in Berlin. Uh, 50 soldiers are basically uh, going through certain society like scenarios. We are measuring uh, with the phones, with different positions of the phones, with different types of phones, and uh, we basically uh, have been working on calibrating various phone types against each other. We have been working on uh, assessing whether the phone is in the ear or it's in the pocket or wherever it is, and we've done that for the for the most popular phones, and uh, we hope that we will have uh, a system available that would be shipping. Uh, in the second week of Easter.
2: Thank you, thank you, Thomas. The uh, Pepe PT, that's not an app, that's rather a platform on which anyone could develop an app?
3: Yes, but what we are providing is also an app implementation um, so that everybody can, I mean, speed is of essence here. Speed is the critical one, because every day costs a lot of money in the lockdown and um, we are providing also an app reference implementation and the back-end reference implementation so that could be taken over or people can just use parts of it as they like as they find it most uh, useful to integrate in their country we are a european team and we provide this technology and then Mm -hmm. if if country x decides to use uh, the portions of the technology they want all of it or parts of it we only ask that they keep interoperability and preserve privacy uh, in, their, in their design, then uh, we would basically uh, uh, they could then do, use that and, and ship their app for their country when they're ready to go. How
2: many people need to uh, download the app so that this is uh, going to be
3: helpful? So uh, there has been there has been a similar, just a science paper published by uh, Christoph Fraser uh, from Oxford University and uh, and his team. And uh, that paper shows that when 60% of the population have the app, it's already a very big effect. But it also shows that if 50 40 30% have the app uh, and would upload their uh, history or their seed, then it would also be a very, very big effect. And uh, the more they have it, the better. That's kind of the, the, the thing. Yeah. If you have it, then the chances are very low that you might encounter somebody else who has the app. So then it's like, oh.
2: Can you say a bit more about the, the the parameters that are being used? So proximity is defined
3: as being two meters. So w- when we started, obviously we've been very skeptical about the ability of Bluetooth to to be used as a distance measurement. I mean, mobile phones are not made for distance measurements, and if you try that with a point-wise approach, like for this moment, how far is the other phone? Um, what's the distance and you, you can download apps for that that would basically find my Bluetooth device. Uh, you would see how much the um, received signal strength is actually varying on, on a single point in time. Now this is not the problem we're trying to solve. We're trying to solve a classification problem, which is have two people being in close proximity, let's say within two meters over 15 minutes. And that 15-minute interval can also be stretched apart. It doesn't have to be um, co- coherently. It can be scattered over the day. We can also ask the question about 1 meter and 50 um, over maybe a shorter time. But at the end of the day, we're talking about five or more minutes of measurement time, uh, over which we can basically reduce the noise the signal has. And then, basically, we would solve that classification problem and uh, report the false uh, positive and false negatives. Some degree it is uh, described in a more simple way that it's a distance measurement problem, but to be clear it's actually a classification problem how close you are to somebody over a given period of time.
2: It seems logical that the longer you are in the proximity of someone, the more likely you are uh, to uh, get infected as well. Mm-hmm. The very high rates uh, in the medical community, the doctors, the nurses, a very high, a higher death rate than uh, among the uh, population. So that's probably because they're you know, just too exposed. I guess you could build some probability distribution into your, into your app that that takes count of, you know, how long uh, you have been maybe exposed to someone or how, how far you have been uh, away from someone. Also maybe, for example, if uh, I mean, there seems to be evidence that the virus could also be transmitted through aerosols. So that would uh, complicate things even further.
3: So there's a button that you can provide, which relates to the donation of data for research. And if you donate your data for research, then your proximity history will also contain the actual measurements that, for, that are used in this classification task. You would also be agreeing to basically provide the anonymous match with whom you may have been contacted. And then when later it turns out that you have been tested positive, we can use real transmission cases because only two or 3% are testing positive out of the contact persons. We can uh, basically use, based on this research data, do a probability estimator based on the measurement data uh, how, when, sus- when suspected real transmission cases happen. And we can use techniques like AI and machine learning for that.
2: Thank you, Thomas. The uh, initiative is called Pan-European, but I mean the idea would be that this turns into a uh, perhaps eventually a global standard. How could people in developing countries uh, use that?
3: We have already received a grant by Botnar Foundation, three and a half million Swiss francs, and they have an outreach team that uh, is actually providing support and help for. For low middle income countries, not European countries that want to basically also implement the system and uh, they get support with regards to creating the app in, in their country, like the user interface, it just needs some principle. They also want to get support for the hosting of the, the back end. If they can't host it, there will be an offer to host it somewhere else for them. They will also get financial support uh, for the campaign to advertise in their country, if that is something that's needed. And for that, there will be also another foundation uh, created for this PET PT Foundation. that foundation will be um, put in law very very soon. And uh, we have a number of donors lined up to support the activity. We are abiding to WHO rules when it comes to accepting donations. And we would then have this outreach program for every country that basically also signs up to the concept, which is between countries so you can travel, the roaming. And the second thing is privacy preserve.
2: Let me ask the same question that I asked uh, Kurt. Are there sunset clauses built into the apps? Uh, how can people be sure that once the disaster is over that data are no longer monitored, taken?
3: You can just uninstall, yeah, and then it's gone. We also considering to provide the certification process where an app can actually use the PEPPT logo. So that would basically mean that we haven't yet figured it all out because mm-hmm. time is short, but uh, we think that it's a good thing to also have a way to make sure that if it's implemented in a, in some country, that that implementation, that instance actually is privacy-preserved. In the future, it might
2: be necessary that you somehow, if you would like to enter a supermarket or whether you would like to get on a train or board an airplane, that somehow you have to show proof that you don't pose a danger to your fellow citizens. So there are you know, apps uh, in uh, some Asian countries. They use a traffic signal system. If it shows green on your app, then it means uh, you're safe. And if it's red, that means you have to stay in quarantine for two weeks. I suppose that will become necessary. Uh, the apps could easily implement such a mechanism if uh, that were needed. Is that correct? Or have you, have you thought about these things?
3: Yeah, we have, we have looked at all the um, digital solutions that are out there. And uh, we decided specifically to come up with PPT because we think that that's the right way to go. I don't want to really comment on those other apps.
2: Is there an independent legal oversight of the mechanism that you have built into the system?
3: So what, what we are doing is we are working with some countries in Europe already, and their data protection and information security offices are uh, advising us, and they have full access to the entire code. It is a very unusual process for many of these offices because usually they need to have a national project that they can look at and and they have their procedures, but they see the, the, the timeliness that's necessary, the urgency, and also the aspect that the European group needs to work together to provide the result very fast and high quality. So they basically are advising us. Then there will be the transfer of the software into the national realm. And at that point, they can even also uh, provide a a public opinion about it. So they have full access to all documents and all software. And as we speak, that process is going on. The platform that you have is similar
2: to Singapore's trace together. But I think that the difference, if I read this correctly, the difference is that it's across countries.
3: Well, I think there are other differences. One is that we only broadcast uh, over the passive scan over short distance, the London Keys. The colleagues in Singapore, I think they make a connect, at least for iOS. The Singapore system also requires you to provide your phone number. You'll be directly connected to the health offices if the system shows a warning. Our conversations with people involved in the legal system in Europe told us that when a legal action is following in Europe from a measurement, like, uh, speed of traffic or other measurements, those measurement systems need to be very carefully calibrated and the accuracy needs to be extremely well documented. Mobile phones have not been built as distance measurement systems. So what we do will have noise. There will be tolerances and it will not be perfect. Basing on a noisy measurement to some degree, uh, a legal action where you would buy an order, send people into quarantine is not, you can't combine that. It has to go on the go. So uh, there need to be ma- much more accurate measurements than you can do with uh, Bluetooth on the mobile phone.
2: One thing that's really encouraging during this COVID crisis is the collaboration among the scientists. They really you know, share quickly all the insights, all the data, all the the modeling. And I think your platform is also another example of collaboration among scientists and engineers. Can you say a few words uh, on that? Yeah,
3: this is not a competitive approach, not at all. We need to solve this problem. If there's a different solution coming along and if we can very easily swap it and it's better, we Mm -hmm. would do so. It's not that this design or whatever uh, is so important if, if we wouldn't immediately swap it with somebody else. It's not about credit. It's not about um, competition. We should all forget about that. We need to solve this problem.
2: So when, when would you be able to say that the uh, PEPPT uh, initiative is successful?
3: Let me put it that way. What we can do is we can deliver a technical system basically a, a measurement system, a network measurement system. And we can basically make measurements according to specifications, right? We can provide how accurate the classification works, true positive, uh, false positive, false negatives, et cetera. And that's what we will deliver. Now, to bridge the hypothesis to the consequence that if it's used quick enough, maybe we can be very fast after the lab result is positive, trigger the system, notify everybody, that then this classification then results in people voluntarily either putting themselves into quarantine or contacting the health offices or going to a doctor. that combination of things actually will then reduce uh, the R0 of the virus, uh, of the epidemic. Then it's successful within all those boundary conditions. So what we can do as our part is we can deliver a technical system and provide um, accuracy measurements with it. This works as good as the following uh, results and and then the next step need to be taken.
2: Okay, Thomas and uh, both also, uh, Kurt, uh, thanks a lot for having joined. You're all super busy and we really, really very much appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Future Positive Podcast. Be sure to check back next week for a fresh new episode. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with fellow futurist friends. And remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback really does help. Speaking of AI, XPRIZE and Cognizant have partnered to create the Pandemic Response Challenge. Focus on developing AI and data-driven systems to predict COVID-19 infection rates, and prescribe intervention plans that minimize harm when reopening cities and restarting economies. You can learn more at XPRIZE.org pandemic response. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future-positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at XPrize.org. See you next week.